We need to find the people who are striving to do better, striving for opportunity, and share with them a message of opportunity, openness, freedom, entrepreneurialism, not laziness, and repercussions for bad behavior. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interest in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate and, if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Hello, and welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, your Political Contessa, and I'm here today to talk to someone who we just kind of got introduced and came into contact. And I have a feeling that he is going to be my new best friend because of the work that him and I both try to do, mine on the female side and his on the millennial side and diversity side. And so I think that my guest today and I are going to be able to change the world maybe for the better. And I'm so excited to have Albert Eisenberg on with me today. And Albert is a Philadelphia-based millennial political strategist Wow, it's like Philadelphia based, but you're GOP and you're millennial, but you're Republican and you're a political and strategist. <laughs> oh, and, and you're gay. And so <laughs> he's an entrepreneur, a commentator, and the co founder of the nonprofit media outlet Broad and Liberty. So, Albert, welcome here today on Political Contessa. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me, Jennifer. I would just like to say first off, besides thank you, I'm a little intimidated because you have a great voice for radio and podcast. And I I hope that I can measure up. (laughs) Thank you. Many years of training in studios. I appreciate that. (laughs) And I can't use my mom voice. I have to, you know, use (laughs) my kids would like me to have this this tone all the time with them. So Albert, so on my end, I am a, you know, getting older female. (laughs) I'm a single mom with three kids, with three girls. One of my daughters just graduated and my little one is 10. So school age kids, I see what it's like for a woman in politics. I've been in politics since I was 19 years old and how the world has just radically changed. And for me, some of it has been for the better. So as a female in politics back in the 1990s, I was told things like, maybe you should wear your skirt a little shorter. And -and so-and-so, you know, some dignitary is coming to visit today and make sure you hug and kiss whoever it is, you know, basically kiss the ring. 
I was spared any groping, well, from at least my immediate bosses, not from the politicians, the, you know, slimy ones. And I have a list of them, which I would never tell who they were, you know, in the middle of taking a picture, someone touches your ass and you're like, what the heck was that? (laughs) But that was real. And so that doesn't really go on anymore today. So, you know, for us, it's better. We see the number of women going up in legislatures. And in Congress, however, it's still moving slowly. It's only ticked up a couple of percent over the past 26 years, which is unfortunate. But I think as a Republican, we still lack having women in office. And I don't mean the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boeberts. I mean, real substantial women who are educated and smart and really want to be a public servant to support other people and to make a difference. And so what I hope I can do on my end with the work I do with women is encourage more women to run for office. And if they can't do that, just get involved in the process. Don't hide your voice. Don't be silenced because society says, well, you're a woman, so you need to be a Democrat, right? Make sure that you're looking at everything holistically, how democratic policies affect our families, affect our pocketbooks, affect our everyday life. And so I'm interested to see why you got into this space, how you got into this space, and what is it that you'd like to achieve overall? Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of thought-provoking commentary there about how things have changed. And I do think things have, I mean, from you know coming out as a gay man in 2009, when I was 18, the world has changed quite a bit. I feel like I've lived through the tipping point of, and now even a majority, I think, of Republicans say that they support gay marriage. You know, it's a settled thing, thanks to the Supreme Court, which we can talk about the constitutionality of that and have a more complex discussion, maybe on a later podcast. But I have been through campaigns where people were uncomfortable or or sort of not predisposed to welcome me in, not because of how I was acting, but simply just because I'm a gay man. Um, And it has been an old boys club for too long. And I think on the Republican side, the party is starting to finally get it in spite of itself. We've ignored these issues. We're still going to enter 2023, 2024 with no elected gay officials to speak of, to speak on our issues from a rational center-right or right voice. But the party has could not believe it's luck with how we've managed to flip Hispanic voters, for example. And that actually Trump has been helpful in that respect in kind of breaking through this paralysis. And the party needs to change and the campaigns, and the candidates and the elected officials and the staffs and the conservative, you know, nonprofit sphere, and journalists, they all need to change because we're going to die out as a movement if we don't represent America. People deserve to be represented. So there's a lot of conservative people, Republicans who are inherently against what you call identity politics. They cross their arms and they say, well, I don't want to do identity politics. And my response to that is, well, if the movement is a movement for individual agency and individual values and universal values, it should reflect what the country looks like. And you can't cross your arms and say, well, I don't care about identity or representation or whatever, and then look and see that the Pennsylvania legislature where I'm from has over 150 elected Republicans, and they are all white. That's not okay at this point. So you are not a party of universal values if all of your stakeholders look like 60% of the country and not 100% of the country. And that's kind of the angle I'm coming at. So I grew up in Philadelphia suburbs went to Georgetown, very sort of blue environment, lived in Brooklyn, and I'm used to kind of sparring with people. But I, like you, kind of maintain a rational viewpoint 
based on human nature and what's going to help people in society. And that has led me to conservative conclusions about any number of things. And now I'm a political consultant and I help campaigns and causes reach a broader voice or reach a broader demographic than the average Republican campaign or conservative nonprofit would. And I'm really excited and proud about my work and glad to talk to you. I love that. So again, it's exactly my feeling is about representing America, right? So if in our society, women make up over 50% of the population, however, we're about 26% of Congress, 26% of legislatures, that does not feel representative. It still seems on both sides, like it is an old white boy society, which is not helpful to me because, you know, when the world shut down over the pandemic and politicians made those decisions, those decisions were made by men who could shut their door to their office and not worry about having to educate their kids. Of course, this is a generalization, right? But it hurt women mostly. It hurt women in the workplace. As a lawyer, you could see women were leaving the workforce with leaving law firms, starting their own thing, finding more flexible hours. And that's because decisions are not made by the people who are representing all of us. So we need more representative government and we need to represent the citizens of the country. And whether they are young, old, doesn't matter your color, doesn't matter your sexual orientation. We need more people. And that doesn't that shouldn't come from just one side. It should come from the Republican side, too. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do is very much the same. And you run up against the same forces because there is this pull of if you are different, you are then a Democrat. So how do you find millennials? How do you find Hispanics? How do you find other gay folks to run for office as a Republican? It's, it's interesting because there's a version of this progressive viewpoint on America that it is somehow progressive to assume that anybody in a minority group thinks a certain way, thinks exactly that certain way. And that's somehow a liberating thing like, oh, you're black, you must be woke. Oh, you're gay, you must be woke. Like that's oppressive. That viewpoint totally. that's not liberating and that's not true freedom or liberation. I mean, the best thing for gay America is to have to be represented across the ideological spectrum and across the parties, because that means that we've truly came of age. It's like there's a lot of research about this. There's a book called How the Irish Became White. It's true of Jews. It's true of Italians. It's true of Hispanics, like political integration and sort of this is part of the American melting pot is you kind of start reflecting everybody else. And that's a really good thing. I don't know. I mean, the party has started to invest in Black and Hispanic stakeholders specifically. We won two seats in Southern California with Asian American women, Korean American women. You can see in the vote tallies, uh, Michelle Steele after getting gerrymandered, which the California independent, quote unquote, congressional remapping, they totally gerrymandered all the Republicans. But Michelle Steele is now in like a Biden plus eight seat. And you saw in the preliminary primary return, the Republicans and Michelle Steele, they're way outpacing the Democrats. So she is way outkicking the coverage in her district because she has a very high name recognition. She's a Korean American woman. She speaks three languages and she's in these districts representing people and she's going to outpace the generic Republican by a significant amount. So the GOP realizes here and there that it's important to get these 
diverse stakeholders elected and reelected. And I think that change has happened in 2018, 2020, 2022, seeing how effective the Democrats were at sort of getting this representation across the finish line and represented in photo ops, frankly. What the GOP has not done, it's certainly not invested in LGBT anything. I think they're scared of a social conservative wing, but there's a lot of people out there who are socially conservative who I can sit down to with and say, hey, I don't want to shut down your bakery if you don't want to serve my gay wedding as long as you happily serve me as a customer every other day of the year. And I think that sort of rational, turn down the temperature, kind of perspective opens up a lot of doors. Most religious conservatives, whether or not they privately think I'm sinning, is irrelevant to me. And if my attitude is very, don't tread on me, you know, like, I won't get in your way. And I acknowledge that there are people getting in in your way right now. There are people that are actively trying to shut down and remove and take out um, people who have socially conservative values. And I think that's wrong. So it would behoove the GOP to invest in people like me or like people who want to run for office. And we just haven't done it yet. It's a real miss. But I think in the next couple cycles, we will get some elected gay and lesbian officials that will be able to carry the mantle and and be that person at the podium when these issues come up. You know, and it's just like anything, right? It's just like having, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor be the first woman to sit on the Supreme Court or be the first, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg to be the first woman in your class to see others who come in and they are not embarrassing and they don't disrupt the apple cart in the way that people think, oh, well, if there's a woman here, if there's a gay man or lesbian in this room, then what does that change, right? And and whatever predisposed notion, you know, we don't want a woman who's pregnant being a legislator because what happens if her water breaks on, you know, as she's giving a speech like, oh no, right? I mean, it's not the movies, I, you know? And so I think that there's this old school notion of what people are without giving them the opportunity to to say, I have a very important voice that could add something to the policy, to the procedures that we're taking here. But it's more than that, you know, and you and I, because we function as political analysts and, you know, strategists, we look at everything up here. So when I go back and I try to find and talk to women to run for office, what I see is how I started with this. People don't They're very hesitant to tell you what they are, their ideology. They are hesitant to start talking. Of course, I do. I start, last night I was at a graduation party. The couple said their son works for a podcast company, whatever, big person, big outfit. So I said, oh, wow, that's so cool. You know, I started a podcast, da, da, da. And so we started talking about it. Of course, the name is Political Contessa. Yeah. And we kind of get into the conversation. If, you, if you're on the subject, it's <laughs> right? going to come out. It's going to come out. Right. And so the wife said, are you conservative without me even saying anything? And I said, yes. And so, you know, we started having this conversation and they're both on the right, one further than the other. One is more center, one is more right. But it was interesting because I can't stop myself. And I make the mistake that other people are like I am, that will be free in their expression of their political belief because I do 
like to believe that we are a kind society. And if you are in a group of friends that they will understand or they'll question why you have your view one way or another. And so how do you find folks? So forget about the maybe some of the closed mindedness in the political party spectra in the higher levels. But think of how do you even find someone who wants to run for office when you do find your needle in the haystack? How do you get that person to say, yes, I am going to dive into this? Well, I think that that's a very interesting story. And I I consider myself a bit of an evangelist in some ways for just sort of rational thinking and being myself and being outspoken, but not in a way that's going to be caustic to people. And, And it is incumbent upon me and you to lead in that regard in center left areas in left areas and be like, no, I'm here. I'm normal. I'm not throwing bombs at you. I think I have solutions for poverty. I think I have solutions for social issues. I think I have solutions for gas prices and I'm here and I'm conservative. And if your listenership is like you, which I imagine they are, they should be empowered to have those conversations in their social environments too, because if good people don't stand up and make their voices heard, then no one's going to do it for us. So I really appreciate you saying that. And I find myself in these situations a lot, especially when I was in more, when I'm in more gay, you know, environments or things like that, you know, when I was younger. And I don't have that faith that everyone in the conversation is going to be respectful of each other because in my 20s, it was the 2010s. And the 2010s, the hallmark of the 2010s, especially being on a college campus, being in Brooklyn, being in Philly right after very progressive, woke, you know, the Trump era made accelerated everything. Every conservative was a Nazi, regardless of the fact that three of my grandparents survived the Holocaust. You know what I mean? So I don't have that faith. And and if I was a little bit older, I think I would have, you know, grown up in a more classically liberal era, but I still think it's important for people to step up. Now, as far as your question, I think there are people who belong to minority groups who are very galvanized to run for office. You see it in South Texas, you see it in South Georgia, you see it in California, you have Hispanics, Asians, Black people, Black Americans, military veterans who are running for office in Indiana. So people have stepped up and I think party committees and the states, and you know more about this than I I do, have invested and developed and found the right candidates in certain places and some places they haven't. There are gay people in America, let's say 25 to 35% of LGBT, let's say mostly gay and lesbian people. The LGBT moniker itself is kind of ridiculous. I mean, 98% of LGBT is gay or lesbian people for all intents and purposes. And if you're bisexual and you're in a straight relationship, I'd prefer if you don't claim that term, just saying, like the governor of Oregon, you know, the first (laughs) openly bisexual governor, she's married to a man. Like, why do you get this? It's just stealing from us. But there are people who would run, let's say that, let's say a quarter to a third of gay and lesbian people are conservative or moderate. Some of those people, like every other community, would be willing to run. And I think some people have run and they haven't gotten through primaries and the state parties have not invested. And that's just a problem. And I'm trying to fix it kind of from the outside. I've been an I've tried with the Pennsylvania Republican Party, you know, and they don't always listen and they don't always accept fresh ideas and there's no time to be idle. It's We should have elected some of these people four or five cycles ago, and we would be in a much better place than we are now. So I don't know how to find candidates and get them to run and get them to win. I mean, that's 
a conundrum. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, here in Massachusetts, we have a Republican Party that really belongs in Oklahoma and nothing against Oklahoma. It just doesn't belong in the Northeast. You know, it's the hate everyone based on social issues. And you have to agree with me, like completely invalidating Ronald Reagan's 80 percent rule about getting along 80 percent of the time doesn't mean you're my enemy. Well, there's none of that in Massachusetts. It is 100 percent, which I think is really what's happening. And I just did a podcast on this recently on how both parties are so black and white. There's no gray anymore at all. And I think the space that you're in and I'm in is a very gray area. It's not black and white. It's not good versus evil. It's not, so I use this on abortion and I'm a, a woman and I feel like I can talk about abortion more than you know any guy does. And so I use this on abortion. So if you say you're pro-choice, what the hell is the difference if you are pro-life, you choose to be pro-life or you're pro-choice, but just because I'm pro-choice doesn't mean I have to have an abortion or right. I have to tell option. you to have an abortion. It is just the option. So I could choose to be pro-life and then allow you to choose to do whatever you want to do, right? That is the wonderful part about choice. However, we have become the society of it's an all or nothing game. And that is really sad. That is unfortunate that we are in that position. And so I always hope that I can give people some freedom and some liberty to have wiggle room to say, you know, well, crazy pants over there you know, says this. And so I'm just going to go with what she said and say, you know, here is he, the, the entire country is basically 80 percent of the country is in the middle. Like, you know, they are smack in the middle. And then you've got the 10 percent on either side. That's insane. The loudest and, and, and they're unfortunately the loudest. Right. Yeah. And so. And you can use that on any topic at all. You could use it on lesbian and gay rights. You could use that on gun rights. You could use it on the choice issue. But for me, it's always the, I can get you to talk, but unless you want to say something, if you don't want to talk, it is so hard. And what I am always looking for are people like yourself who are willing to walk into the room and say, hi, I'm Jen. I am a woman. I'm a mom. And here is what I believe in. And I'm a Republican. And my views, really, I am I am all over the place. <laughs> my political views, like if you listen to me, I am like a smorgasbord. But what I don't like is I will never agree for public funding of abortions. I will never agree to public funding of gender transitions. I will never agree. You know, it's like I have my whole step right now, Massachusetts, we're giving driver's license to illegal aliens. I'm like, oh, that's great. You know, so now I have a kid who's just starting to drive. She had to go through everything. She had to go through the course. We basically have to give our liver away to travel out of the country at this point and to come back in. But we're just giving stuff up. You know, and it's our taxpayer dollars. Yeah. And so that to me is look, if you are a fiscal conservative, who cares what you look like? Who cares who you go home to? Who cares if you have peanut butter and jelly for dinner or you enjoy a steak? I don't care. What I want to know is are you doing the thing that is going to protect all of us and put us all on better footing? And that is not giving money away to other people, it is giving people opportunities which we don't have right now under a Democratic administration. So with that, how do you sway millennials? 
because it feels to those of us that are Gen Xers and above, we um, get really discouraged by your generation and the feeling as though we all worked really, really hard to get to where we were. And especially for Gen Xers and the young baby boomers, we have been sitting around, not sitting around, we have been working our tails off. We got super educated because our parents told us to. We worked really hard. We have put in our time. And now when there should be positions open for us, there are baby boomers still lingering and millennials are nipping at our heels. And it has been, I think, really hard for my generation to want to have the impact that we wanted to have because before we knew it, after school, we were having families. And then now, you know, we're established. And now we've got millennials saying, you people are terrible. And we actually want you to pay us. We don't want to go to work. <laughs> we want everything to be equitable. We don't care that you had to work to get to where you are, but everyone else should have it pretty free and clear. Obviously, you, this is a generality again. You don't believe in this, but how do you change that mindset? How do we get them on board to start voting for Republicans also and not talking right. crap about us? Right. Well, there's a lot there. I mean, I think your point about the fringes of the country being the loudest on the left and the right is one of the biggest problems we face as a country. And one of my goals as a communications, and you know, that's my specialty is, is comms. I do digital I do traditional, trying to get um, a client's voice out there or my voice out there, because I write as well, is trying to empower the people in the middle. And that doesn't mean some mushy compromise. You can have strong values and strong perspectives and strong lines, like you described on the driver's licenses for illegal immigrants. That's a line for you. For me, there's any number of issues, but like I support the death penalty in a very limited number of cases, the Boston bomber being an example of them. Mm -hmm. Like for me, that's a line. I'm for that. I'm never going to be argued, uh, persuaded against that because I support it in a very limited number of specifically heinous crimes. I think it's always existed in societies and I support it. And there's a number of issues like that. LGBT, I think everyone should be treated fairly and justly. And obviously I support gay marriage and I thank the left in a lot of ways for the rights that I had, just like I thank the conservative lawyer who argued on the DOMA case on our side of things. But I don't think biological men and biological women are, are equal to each other in physical capacities. And I don't think 18-year-old biological boys should be wrestling against 18-year-old biological girls. I just don't think that. And I never will think that. And that's not a reality-based position to defend. So I'm against that. But I'm not against it in a way that means that I have to misgender trans people or hate. You know what I mean? Right, like, exactly. There's a middle ground. And we yes. have to have longer form conversations calmer conversations about these issues or else we're getting trapped in this funhouse mirror politics, which we find ourselves in. As far as the millennials go, my generation, because I'm 31, I'm kind of in the smack of this, you know, I think 29 to 31 is like the largest age demographic in the country after baby boomers as far as population, which is why you are in the middle and you feel squeezed by the baby boomers who haven't left and are working longer and the millennials like me who are nipping at your heels, let's say. I think, again, most millennials are not the ones we're talking about. Most millennials just have the same values as everyone else. They want to work hard. They want to provide for their families. They want to have a fulfilling life, probably be involved in their community some way or another. They might be less likely to go to church. They might be less likely to vote Republican. But overall, most people are normal people. The problem is that we had a your special star on all of our tests from the age of 
six on. And we were taught we were special, we were unique. I mean, there was a very perverse ideology that was foisted upon us, not just an anti-American ideology, which is poisonous, but this sort of entitlement attitude. And we forced the hands of the government in a lot of ways to, quote unquote, forgive our debt when it comes to college, to subsidize us sitting on our asses, frankly. And that's just not a way to have a sustainable civilization. It's not in the American ethos whatsoever. So a lot of us, I think, got bad degrees, don't have skills, expect someone else to pay our way. And it might sound like obnoxious to me, but I work really hard and I've been scrappy and I worked three jobs through college and I graduated with a ton of student debt. And I don't expect anyone else to pay my way. I'm still paying down that debt and I'm working hard. And I think some people who are the loudest people in my generation need to fall on their asses a little bit and if they can't get up on their own, they can't expect their government or their rich dad or whoever it is to pick them up. I think that's a problem. Yeah. And it's so so that's exactly I think that a lot of us in Gen X were more scrappy. Right. Like I, I was like you. So my dad died when I was 10. Sorry to hear that. Thank you. Um, just hit 40 years. That gives you my age. But it's um, wild. 40 years. It's crazy. And I worked from the time I was 14. I worked in the food store and then I was a bus girl and a hostess and a waitress. And I did that all through college and grad school and into law school. And I worked a full-time regular job in the summer and after, after I graduated from And you probably got great grades. And, and I graduated from grad school with honors. I got into law school. I graduated law school, amazing law school, St. John's in New York, and went on and passed the bar exam, right? And so I had to work. I had no choice. I had no one who was going to take care of me. And because I was young when my dad died, my mom's view was... You either work hard or there's no alternative. Like you're never going to go on welfare. You should never use that as an option. That is not an option. So go to school, get good grades, keep going to school and do what you need to do until you could get a good job. And so it is frustrating, right? When it is, let's give everything away. We now need to have our debt absolved when we, my generation, paid our debt. And it's not that millennials don't work hard, but I think they're, you know, it's funny to hear you say about the gold star. Like, I think that that's one of the problems. Like we were never told, none of us, none of us up here, right? On this end, we're ever told you're fabulous by our teachers. Our teachers were like, hey, how about this? I'm going to smack your wrist with a ruler and then I'm going to call your mom. And you're like, oh my God, just slap my wrist. <laughs> right? I would, yeah, I would that's a good prefer thing. that over calling my mom. Calling yeah. my mom means like I am grounded and I am, that's the end of the life that I know. And by the way, I had people at high school with me who's if the teacher called their mom, they would the mom would fight back for their student. Yes. For the kid. Yes. And I just that my parents never did that. No. You know? And that's the difference. I, my, I have family and friends that are teachers. And I mean, it's even worse today, you know, where you, sure. can't even, you can't even call home. But I remember them saying then that, you know, if you call home, the mother says, I don't understand why you're calling me and you need to give my child an A. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's a really interesting strategy. But, you know, we did not have that. And so um, now you have a whole, as you said, you know, 29 to 31 big voter block 
So what happens in states like mine, you're pretty blue still, you know, I'm super blue. We're going to now lose our fabulous Republican governor. And if we don't elect another Republican governor, we never will switch our legislature around. It's just, we've got about 36 members out of 200 that are Republican. That's not changing. So really having the corner office for us is very important for that checks and balance. But if you lose that, And in the next election, when you do have a lot of your generation that is voting and they stayed around Massachusetts, they went to all of our fabulous schools, they got homes, had families, building their families and great. But if you're not understanding and the whole Republican Party looks like a version of something out of 1944, then who are you voting for? And how do you how do you get them to see past that also is the other problem. Well, it's hard. I mean, it's going to take a lot to unindoctrinate somebody who went to a liberal arts school and has an anthropology degree. They are going to have to face life on their own. And if they're struggling financially and they don't have their parents' credit card, they're at the grocery store right now and they're at the gas station and reality bites. So the phrase that we use is like red pilling somebody is kind of that matrix reference where they finally see reality and they see that all these policies that were marketed as very nice things that are going to help everybody end up having horrible repercussions, which is why B and you opposed them in the first place. So people are going to see reality. I think your personal story is very compelling. And it just reminds me that the Republican Party, there are people like you growing up all over the country. They're from all backgrounds and they had have had a rough go of it because of their circumstances or their family background or bad luck or the economy or whatever it is, or because their parents weren't well educated or because one of their parents passed or be any number of situations. And they are striving right now. They're striving. You go to North Philadelphia, you have people who are scrappy, who are striving, who are trying to do better for themselves, who are trying to teach their kids the right way to live. And then they see their neighbors who are not. Those people should be the GOP's natural constituency. So we need to find the people who are striving to do better, striving for opportunity, and share with them a message of opportunity, openness, freedom, entrepreneurialism, not laziness, and repercussions for bad behavior which people are crying out for, especially in blue cities. You just saw it with the San Francisco recall. We need repercussions for bad behavior. We need deterrence. And there are a lot of, you talk to regular Black voters, a mom in North Philadelphia, Southwest Philadelphia, she shares a lot of the same values me and you are talking about right now. The problem is that the GOP hasn't figured out that that person shares the values. So why would they even go in and message anything for her? Right. And I think what we're talking about, our stories, even though we're, you know, almost 20 years difference in age, are very similar stories of probably why each of us became a Republican. And that's what I always say is I became a Republican because when I was a kid and my dad died and my mom went to work 13 hours a day to be able to put food on the table. And I remember her saying, I am never going to get food stamps. I'm not going on welfare. I'm going to make this work. And in my head, it was pull yourself up by the boot. Bootstraps. And I always felt that it was the Republican Party that said, go to work, get a job, and you will be rewarded with the so-called American dream by the fruits of your labor. And the pursuit of happiness means if you don't do it, 
the right way, you're going to fall on your ass. Right. And you're not entitled to it. You're not entitled. You're not entitled. So you're not entitled to happiness. You're entitled to pursue it. Right. So in Boston, I was like I said, I ran for the Boston City Council. Now it's three years ago, which is crazy because the pandemic kind of messed up time, (laughs) the time frames. But when I was running and my opponent was a housing expert, which she was 30 years old. I'm not really sure how you're, you know, a <laughs> housing expert who just graduated from, you know, with your PhD, but whatever. So she's an advocate, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, they talked about putting public housing in one part of the city and taking it away, just adding on public housing in one part of the city. But the part of the city that we were running to represent has no schools, no public schools, only private schools, no public transportation, very sparse public transportation, no cheap food stores, <laughs> nowhere to get right. food, nowhere that there's a jobs that folks who live in certain communities were going to get to. So basically they would have to have a car, live in downtown Boston where there are no schools. They would need a car because they would need to take their kid. And in Boston, our roads were made for horse and carriages. So, you know, they would have to go 40 minutes across the city to bring their kids to a public school, hopefully that they got into by lottery. Then they would have to go to their job. Then they have no family around them. And so all I kept saying was, so wait, so wealthy, privileged white people are saying we need to move you out of your community, that you're safe, that you have your whole network so we could feel good about ourselves. And I'm like, I, I just don't agree dressing. with that. Right. Window dressing. I, I just, I don't feel good about that. I don't feel good about separating people from their families and separating people from what they need because we needed my grandparents. We lived with my grandparents. If someone said, Hey, you know what? Come over here. We're going to take care of you and we're going to do this. And you don't have to work as much. I loved living with my grandparents. I had a great experience. It gave me a understanding of elderly people in a very different light because I lived with them and you know, just their value system. And I think that we need, the party needs our voices and more of our voices to tell the individual story, right? It's not the growing up with a platinum spoon in your mouth. It's not the, oh, I never needed to work. It is the falling on your ass. It is the having to get up because there is no safety net below you. And it's just the entitlement that for me, you know, I, I don't believe that everyone should go to college. I believe in vocational schools. I think that we have you tried to get, you know, I know you've recently renovated a townhome, like trying to get an electrician, a plumber, a contractor, a mason, like you have to really know someone to be able to get someone to come to your house and do work. Well, why don't we encourage more people to get educated in a trade? And while they're doing that, teach them business skills so that way they can go out eventually and own their own business. Yeah. Be, you know, be a bigger provider because then it's more jobs that you're providing and more families you're taking care of. And so we have it all messed up. So instead, we just pay for your college education, your degree in, you know, anthropology, and you live in the Northeast. I don't know what you're digging. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot there of what you just said, I think, that comes out from a policy standpoint. I think we have created safety net after safety net after safety net, whether it was uh, barring landlords, even even landlords who are on a fixed income and their only investment is their property from evicting tenants that don't pay to guaranteeing to continuing an emergency 
uh, moratorium on student loan repayments. The emergency is long over. We've done a lot of that as a society, and Republicans are scared to touch it because what happens if Republicans touch the increased welfare benefits, which are really keeping people down, we believe. They're keeping people not fully impoverished, but just impoverished enough, right? And the, everyone will clutch their pearls and will be screamed at. So Republicans are scared to say it, but people like you with a personal story to tell should not be scared to say it because a lot of people agree with us on this, including in the communities we're discussing. The people who don't agree with us are largely white, largely progressive, largely upper middle class or upper class, and they've never had to struggle. So they speak on behalf of people, but they don't actually understand it. And that's, I think, the fear. That's why they get so angry, because they know that they haven't really experienced any hardship and you hit it and they freak. So we need to share that. And I think, you know, public housing, I have a photo of Margaret Thatcher behind me. She liberalized the public housing in Britain such that people who are living in government housing were able to purchase over time the house that they were living in at a subsidized rate. And then they became homeowners with actual equity, actual roots where they were. I would love to hear that policy discussed in areas. Because that's really, that's what empowerment is, is giving people the opportunity to be their best selves and provide for others down the line. Conservatives who are not trying to rally for trade schools and trying to route as many young, ambitious people as possible out of four-year education system that's incredibly expensive and is diminishing returns to trade schools. Anybody who's not talking about that is completely missing it at this point. Yeah. And I love that. I love that story about Margaret Thatcher. And I'm glad that you shared that because that's important, right? Giving people the power to own their own lives, right? That pursuit of happiness. You are the only person who can pursue it. You can't ask someone else to just give it to you. It doesn't work that way. And it wouldn't be fulfilling if you could. No, no. And by the way, that policy made her wildly popular among working class Britain. Right. So now how do we, okay, you and I now are going to save the world. We're going to save America or maybe just save the East Coast, but whatever, you know, how do we build solutions and give solutions to the Republican Party for them to bring in more people like you and me, quite honestly? Okay. So I think like as a systematic person, we both run businesses. So I have to like break it into manageable chunks. So step one, I think, is taking away power from the crazy woke Democrats. That's going to happen in November. And the thing that we need to put our foot on the accelerator on is making sure as many Hispanics, Asian voters, Black voters, LGBT voters as possible, people who have not heard the Republican message, understand that the Republican Party is their party of opportunity in the American dream, the party of safe streets and freedom from tyranny of others, of your bullying neighbors, the party of entrepreneurship and low taxes and reducing costs. Every American voter needs to hear that between now and November, early and often in their native language from people who look and sound like that. So that's what I try and do with my marketing. Now, once you get the right people elected or the wrong people thrown out, then we have to think about policy and be prepared. And the worst case scenario is what happened in 2016 when the House Republicans were caught completely flat-footed. No market-based solution for Obamacare was probably the most embarrassing political fiasco decades for the Republican Party. So we obviously need to prepare and have conversations like this. But step one is get the wrong people out, get the right people in. Step two is make sure that we have 
market-based, reality-based solutions that are going to improve real people's lives and that can get them the message. Yeah. It can't just be tax cuts. No, 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 no. I Look, it can't be tax cuts. It has to be the message to, and it has to be a positive message, right? Because my problem with the Republican Party always, and the one thing I tried to do as chair was not always just be the voice of no and the voice of they suck, so elect us, right? Because that message is gone. I think, you know, we're much too smart now. We're much too savvy, social media, everything else, you know, the jig is up. So it has to be some sort of here is what we're going to do. Here are paths, right? Here is what we are providing to you that hasn't been provided to you in the past. I mean, I got into a fight last week with a Democrat. I host a, a political roundtable once a month. And um, I got into a fight with, not a fight, a dispute with a friend of mine who's a Democrat who you know comes to this roundtable. And funny enough, he said, well, you know, the Democrats need to talk about the economy. And I was like, yeah, I hope you guys talk about the economy, right? And I said, can I ask you a question? though, as a Republican who does believe in the Second Amendment, the way it was written, I don't believe in the NRA. I believe in the Second Amendment. How do you guys go to sleep at night knowing that you have had all three chambers and you have not passed any gun reform legislation in 18 months? How do you go to sleep at night? Because I have a fourth grader. And if what happened happened and my kid was in that class, I would be talk about storming the Capitol like there would be no stopping. Right. And so it is terrible. It's a tragedy. Don't call out Republicans for being the ones that are holding it off when you guys have been there for 18 months and you could have done something about it. And that stopped the conversation. Right. Because. I want to hear. I want to hear who has a solution. And, you know, I think Matthew McConaughey did a great job in his speech. And I think both parties need to come together. And now we need solutions. Yeah. But I think that Republicans need, to, like you said about, you know, healthcare. Republicans need to be ready to go on day one with top four priorities. Get one done a year. I don't care. But if they don't do that, we don't deserve to win in 2024. I think we're going to have this back and forth continuously because the other party goes, not me, it's them, right? Correct. And that's, we have a cycle of political resentment and we're stuck in this, like, there's like a political resentment industrial complex. There's way too much fundraising and outrage to be stirred up both by the left and the right when there's any compromise. And frankly, I've been on the inside of some legislative things where there could have been a solution in certain LGBT issues, and the Democrats sunk the bill because they wanted to raise money and call the other side bigots. There's way too much of that, and there's too much power and too much money to be raised. So that's why we don't have solutions on a lot of things, because we have entrenched fringes that will mobilize and stir up outrage and anger, even though 70, 80% of the country wants compromise on reasonable restrictions to assault rifles until you're the age of 21. To me, that sounds reasonable. Abortion up to two or three months, to me, sounds very reasonable. Not after, but not before one month. I mean, people need a moment, I think, to decide early in the pregnancy. There's a lot of common ground to be found, but we have such angry and entrenched fringes. And we need to focus, we need to get smart people working on empowering center-right voices, making them sexy to people, attention-grabbing. 
for example. So that's kind of the stuff I work on. But I think me and you have diagnosed a lot of the same problems <laughs> and are working hard on them. And it's, you know, it's nice to be, maybe it's just because we're both from blue areas that we have to be like this to get by. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, I, I couldn't survive, you know, if I was just throwing bombs the whole time. But, you know, as you as you see, I think it's it's that being compassionate and going through life with empathy and seeing that not everyone agrees on everything. Maybe their side of the story is, you know, something to listen to. Doesn't have to sway your opinion, doesn't have to change your mind, but I think just listening to other people. And I mean, I think in your own business in Blue State Red, you know, you say, what is the rarest resource on earth? And it's our attention. And I think also the other thing that goes on today, everyone has ADHD, right? I mean, everyone is so plugged into whatever news source they want, whatever podcast they want to listen to. Everyone is very distracted. And how do you cut through the noise of the echo chamber that you're in? Because you just watch MSNBC or you just watch Fox, right? And you can't get out of it and see someone else's perspective. But I think it's good for all of us to be well-rounded and for us to cut through the noise and to appreciate other people's opinions that we're not all the same. We're all unique individuals. And I'm hoping that eventually the party itself will also start to recognize that it's not just the, you know, and it's why people like you are needed, right? And people like me are needed. It's not just bashing the other side, but it's coming up with those good ideas and finding candidates who will help promote those ideas and the good policy. And people, people need to eat their vegetables. Like if you listen to the difference between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Shelley Moore Capito, Shelley Moore Capito oh. is a very sensible, calm, red rock, rock rib conservative Love center her. from West Virginia. She was totally influential in the infrastructure bill and making sure we didn't get this enormous boondoggle, but we actually got something. The difference between listening to Marjorie Green and Shelly Moore Capito is Marjorie Taylor Green is like a big gulp of Mountain Dew. And <laughs> Shelly Moore Capito is like a plate of greens. And people need to eat their greens. We need to pass on the crack and the sugar. And we need to, to focus individuals. Everyone listening is empowered to do this. If you see bullshit and you see bombast and you see histrionic, just move on and don't pay attention to it and focus on things that are working and things that are building forward. And that's, everybody has the power to do that. We all need to do that. I love that. I think that that is a great way for us to end. It's trademarked. It is. Eat your greens. (laughs) Yeah. Come to you. from from the future of the Republican Party. <laughs> Not sexy, but so necessary. So, so necessary. It is true. Albert, it has been wonderful to have you on with me today on Political Contessa. Made this episode really fun. I hope that we can talk again. Maybe you and I, hopefully other people are, uh, you know, some of the powers that be listen and realize that there's more out there than just what they hear every day. So Albert Eisenberg, thank you so much for being with me. Albert's organization is called Blue State Red, and it is a strategic agency that creates and deploys messages 
that break through the noise and win beyond. And that is a quote. He is a millennial entrepreneur, and it has been so fun to have Albert on with me today. So Albert, thank you very much. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks for carrying the banner in Boston. I'll keep carrying it in my blue city. Yeah, exactly. We'll have to have to do some work in between as well. And thank you for being here with me today on this episode of Political Contessa. Stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 